This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode. Our guest today is Dr. Nairi Bakalian. Dr. Bakalian has a PhD in history from the University of Pittsburgh from 2017 and focused on the Northern Alliance, a coalition of Japanese fiefdoms. Dr. Bakalian, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So our topic today is the shogunate navy in, in this era of Japan, but I should ask first, how did you first gain an interest in Japanese history? I am originally from California, and some of my earliest memories are watching my father train in Aikido in the uh, downstairs hall of the Konko Church in San Francisco. And yeah, he was also a fan of Kurosawa films and you know, other popular culture uh, like that. And so through those, you know, very, very personal, very family connections, I had a very early exposure. But I traced the beginning of my academic interest in Japan to being, you know, in my, I think, junior year of high school <clears throat> and having watched an anime called Ruroni Kenshin, Kenshin the Wanderer in English, is how I would translate that. Um, but it's about this fictional samurai in the 1870s trying to tie up the loose ends of his earlier life in the very volatile 1860s. And uh, much to my surprise, I found that, wow, you know, there's this character and this character and this character in this show, it turns out, are real historical figures. Who are they? What were they involved with? And it turned out that that led me to more and that led me to more and that turned into a bachelor's thesis and that turned into a master's thesis and that turned into a phd uh you know i'm i'm what happens when an when an anime fan falls into an academic library you might say <laughs> well that's interesting because does is most japanese anime then based on reality the reason i asked that question mm -hmm. is because there was a series called star blazers a cartoon and anime it was anime right yes uh in the 19 late 70s or early 80s, mm -hmm. and that focused on the battleship Yamato from World War II being reconfigured into a, a, a starship, so it was mm -hmm. you know, science fiction. But mm -hmm. do the Japanese often draw upon uh, historical people or platforms for anime? Uh, well, it, of course it depends on the genre, but when it, when it deals with a historical topic or a sort of a historical adjacent topic, there's a lot more of reality in there than might initially might initially appear to be, you know, even if it's sort of very, very over the top sort of exp <laughs> magical explosions and uh, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. You wind up having something not in all, but quite often you wind up having something that really is true to the spirit of the of these figures rather than uh, rather than necessarily the exact historical facts. So. One example I could give is Sengoku Basara, this very recently a very popular anime and also video game series. And some of my particular foci uh, in Japanese history appear in there, most notably Date Masamune, founder of the city of Sendai. He, uh, you know, he appears as this as this uh, wild figure who rides rides a steed, the part motorcycle and part horse. Obviously, you know that's that's not real, but the 
his interest in trying new things and his sort of unorthodox character in war and in peace and some of my earliest interaction with on 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 social media with with fans of Japanese history who came in through anime was fans of Sengoku Basara and the more I shared about the real Date Masamune the more that they would say wow so the anime wasn't that far off mm. obviously there I don't I don't know if I could give you a yes or a no there but you know, you'd be. I guess what it comes down to is that very often you'd be surprised how much reality is is worked in there. One of the things that we've discussed in previous episodes of Preble Hall is the a bit of the evolution of the Japanese Navy, particularly in the late 19th century. Yes, and that was specifically when a naval academy graduate, Philo McGiffin, was at the Battle of Yalu against in the Sino-Japanese War. We mentioned uh, the Battle of Tsushima very briefly in another episode. American naval historians and the public will be generally more familiar with the interaction between Commodore Matthew Perry and the Japanese, uh, particularly with the Treaty of Kanagawa in 1854, yes. which we, we learn that this is with the opening of Japan. But that's not really the case, is it? I mean, how much interaction did Japan have either with the United States or Western Europe prior to the Treaty of Kanagawa? More than might uh might seem to be the case we have this image i think in popular histories of japan being i think melville called it that great double bolted land of japan you know, hermetically sealed is the is the image basically but in 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 reality and in, in actuality that 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 was less the case uh partly because you know if with the, with the growth of with the growth of steam powered vessels um, whaling ships were more appearing more often in Japanese waters as time went on. Yes, the Dutch were the only Europeans allowed to legally trade with Japan through, you know, 1854, but uh, there were other nations who sent people through the Dutch, and that included Americans. And there was an earlier mission, uh, I think under Commodore James Glynn, aboard the USS Preble, rather... <laughs> I, I I must say I, rather appropriate. I appreciate the I appreciate the convergence there. Um, the the namespace collision, as as some might put it, but it was unsuccessful. Perry was finally the one who managed to do what Glenn and Laxman from the Russian Navy and a number of other a number of other uh, naval officers of various nations had tried to do. So Japan knew about. Russian naval power and British naval power and French naval power and so on and American growing American naval power too um, and contrary to what I've seen even in a few history English language history books on the subject the shogunate knew that Perry was coming I can't stress that enough like it's not that that you know magically these 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 steamships appeared out of nowhere um, and everybody was just frightened and cowed the shogunate knew that Perry was coming, and they had seen steamships before. The problem was that they didn't have what they needed in order to effectively, effectively counter them, in order to effectively have a have an equal or near equal response. You, you mentioned Russia, there's France, England, etc. Was there an attempt by them to do what Perry had done, or was there a reason that Perry was simply more successful than Western Europeans in opening up trade, more trade, with Japan? The one that immediately comes to mind is the mission of Adam Laxman. The, the precise date escapes me right now, but it was very either very late late 18th or very early 19th century. 
who came down to what's now called Hokkaido and attempted to negotiate with the shogunate officials uh, who were based there for the opening of trade and visitation. The trouble was that, as I recall, Laxman only came with one ship. And ultimately, the, you know, if it's one ship, that's, that's more, that's, it's more possible to just wake them out and annoy them enough that they'll go away, to put it, to put it one way. Perry, however, came with a flotilla and didn't back down. So I think strength in numbers and persistence paid off where others you know, might not have had the resources or the firepower to be able to do what Perry did and you know, force the issue. Prior to Perry, was there any effort by the Japanese to uh, form some sort of navy? Did they have any experience in this? So it's an interesting topic because obviously Japan is a very maritime nation. Um, and including under the, under the control of the shogunate, it's not that there wasn't um, you know, coastal vessels or uh, shipping of any kind. Obviously there was. The restrictions that got in the way of this were legal restrictions on shipbuilding that were in place since roughly the 1630s. Uh, meant to bolster the national the policy of national seclusion. So not only could no foreigners, except for the Chinese and the Dutch, legally visit Japan, but no Japanese could send their own vessels to other countries. Now some did, and quite often unintentionally. There were there were a few people, a few fishing vessels, I think, that uh, got blown clear across the Pacific to what's now Oregon. There were other Japanese castaways that wound up in Russia, but but in terms of in terms of the in terms of I guess the tonnage would be the term. They didn't have that. They didn't have anything big enough to sustain a long term, long duration voyage, say across the Pacific. And what, this is what's relaxed after 1854. What was the type of government that Perry encountered in Japan at this time? This is the shogunate government. Yes. Um, can you describe it a little bit and how it operated? Certainly. So the shogunate was not a strong central government. It was a central government, but it was it was it was decentralized. It was the sort of the loose central government overseeing the administration of <clears throat> sort of national affairs in tandem with locally independent feudal lords who in theory owed fealty to the shogun and his government. Some feudal lords had more say in how the shogunate was run and could be nominated for positions in the government. Others, like my guys up in the north, the Date, were uh, barred from that kind of participation because they swore fealty a little bit too late. These are uh, rules that start to shift a little bit as we get into the 1850s, but for the most part, that's the way that the, that's the system that Perry would have encountered. And something that amuses me is that in period sources, uh, there's reference to the emperor of Japan, the emperor of Japan. With our modern eyes, that comes across as, you know, the ancestor of Emperor Naruhito. But in fact, when you see the phrase emperor in an English language source from the 1850s, it's referring to the shogun. And if you see the word mikado, it's referring to what we call the emperor today. And I should add that shogun is a military title. These are warrior caste people. The house of Tokugawa is the family from which the shogun is chosen. 
Uh, it's supposed to be hereditary, but the, her, the, the lineage of heredity breaks down and they have to adopt in from cousins along the way. But Shogun is, is, the, is, his, military, is his military title. The Shogun's civil title was Tycoon, Great Lord. And that's where we get the word Tycoon from, which we still use today. One of the changes that happens in the Japanese government and potentially with its military forces after Perry leaves uh, Japan. The shogunate realizes pretty quickly that there's nothing guaranteeing that they're going to be able to mount an effective response if Perry comes back or if some other, you know, some other naval officer from some other Navy, Western Navy comes back and decides to do to Japan what was done to China in the decades prior, including during the Opium Wars. So they begin this crash course, the shogunate begins this crash course of, of reforming their government and modernizing their military uh, uh, equipment, but also organization. And this is the birth of the shogunate navy and the shogunate army. There were efforts before this at doing, at reforming the shogunate's military, but also the, the different feudal fiefdoms, the, the, the domains, militaries along Western lines. There's a very famous um, former by the name of Egawa who developed his own hybrid Japanese and Western infantry drill and, among other things, was also the inventor of Japanese-style hardtack. Um, so there are efforts before 1854, but after 1854, they take on a new urgency. So the shogunate uh, begins to pursue buying equipment from overseas, but also establishing new organization, military and civil organizations to be able to handle being open to international trade. Sorry, who do they buy from? Primarily, the, the intent was to primarily buy from the United States, given that it was the United States that had forced the Treaty of Kanagawa and thus had the military power that the shogunate, maybe not all of the shogunate, but certainly quite a few people in the shogunate aspired to. But the U.S. Civil War got in the way of that, so they also bought from the French and the Prussians and the Dutch. Um, during the Civil War of 1868, there's actually a, a very uh, a Prussian, uh, there's two Prussian brothers who run guns up from Shanghai for the ex-shogun's military, and their name is Schnell, rather fittingly. <laughs> um, but uh, they're buying, they're, yeah, they're buying from the French, the, uh, the British, the Prussians, the Dutch, and the, and the United States to a lesser extent. This changes after 1865, though. What kind of things are they buying? Are they buying ships? Are they buying simply small arms? Small arms. I saw a receipt once for knapsacks, ships, certainly, ammunition, cannons, and in a couple cases, Gatling guns. They're buying, they're buying pretty, much, pretty much anything that you might see in a Western military. And in a way, they're also buying services because in your work, you mention a, a, a Naval Academy graduate, actually. You yes. mentioned a couple of them. The first yes. one is John Mercer Brooke, who yes. was a Naval Academy class of 1847. Can you tell us the story of John Mercer Brooke and how he, how he gets in, uh, tied into Japan? So John Mercer Brooke was commanding the survey ship USS Fenimore Cooper uh, survey of the Pacific and the Pacific Rim and trying to improve the quality of maps that were at the disposal of the United States. During this tour, his vessel um, sank 
off of Yokohama. I think it was his crew. He survived. His crew survived. They were able to. They were able to get everything pretty much of value off of the ship in time. But the ship was written off. Um, so you have this U.S. Navy crew in Japan at that point and needing to needing to I guess occupy themselves. And uh, you know they 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 are they are invited by the shogun's government to advise the development of the Shogunate Navy Academy, which was initially founded in Nagasaki in Western Japan. And Brooke has a hand in training this initial cadre of uh, Shogunate Navy personnel. And at this, uh, by that point, I think it was 1858, 1859, they had, uh, the Shogunate Navy had its first few Western-style vessels. Brooke and most of his crew from the Fenimore Cooper, effectively, they, they take charge of the Shogunate Navy warship Kanrin Maru during its Trans-Pacific voyage to San Francisco, escorting the Japanese political delegation that was aboard the USS Powhatan going to visit President Buchanan in 1860. It's not that the, it's not that the Japanese uh, officers and crew were not able to handle, uh, or technically able to handle the Pacific voyage, but Brooke and his crew had better sea legs, I, mm-hmm. I suppose is the best way to put it. Let's go back for just a, a minute to sure. the Japanese Naval Academy. Do we know anything about that, about how it was formed, what kind of courses they taught, uh, and perhaps if was it how similar was it to potentially the Naval Academy since, since Brooke had, uh, had taken a role in it? I'm not as intimately familiar with the details, partly because I no longer have access to the academic library through which I did a lot of my initial research, though I'm hoping that I can get back to that soon. The What I do know is that it was founded right next to the old Dutch factory in Nagasaki. And when, when I say factory, it's more of not so much like an industrial factory in the modern sense, but more of the Dutch outpost at Dejima. Right, like they had in uh, Canton, the Canton exactly. factories that were represented by each country, right? Exactly, yeah, that's that's the idea. Uh, so it was founded next to that, and this is immediately on the immediately on the waterfront in Nagasaki, and there was a nearby shipyard that was also under the shogunate's control. From that, I, I would gather that you know, there was seamanship, but there was also uh, instruction in shipbuilding and mm-hmm. some measure of instruction in... Uh, uh, use of cannons and small arms. Uh, the academy does move. It's moved to the Hama Naval Station in Edo, what's now Tokyo. While I'm sure that even listeners of the podcast who are somewhat familiar with Greater Tokyo might not know Naval Station Hama, they'll know the name Skiji Fish Market. Uh, Skiji Fish Market is roughly where this naval station used to be. It's Skiji. It's the it's the naval it's the it's the tra- the the relocated naval academy at Skiji that is taken over by the nascent Imperial Japanese Navy and becomes their naval academy, which is moved to Etajima about I think fifteen years later. With regard to the naval academy, is there any indication how many of their cadets they sent overseas? And again, the reason I ask that is because by the eighteen seventies. There was the first cadre of Japanese cadets that came to the U.S. Naval Academy. There were uh, Japanese cadets that went to England to be educated. And was was this something that was pervasive, or were these just pretty much one-offs? At the very beginning, this was something that was done, but it wasn't done 
pervasively because of the cost. Uh, my my guess would be because of the cost involved in sending and supporting somebody all that way. The most famous case of this, though, uh, that I can point to is Enomoto Takeaki, who later becomes an admiral of the Imperial Navy. Um, he was trained in Holland, and him he and some of the other Japanese that went with him sailed back to Japan aboard the Dutch-built new brand new flagship of the shogunate navy Kayomaru. Kayomaru became Enomoto's flagship when Enomoto was in soon thereafter promoted to admiral, quite a jump in rank. This would have been um, very late 1860s uh, and Enomoto was back in Japan as of 1867 and it was Kayomaru was his flagship during the Boshin War of 1868 to 1869. You had mentioned that there was a delegation going to see President Buchanan. What yes. was their mission? As I recall, their mission was to deliver acknowledgement of, from the shogun of the Treaty of Kanagawa, but also to deliver, uh, to deliver a request to renegotiate the unequal treaties. Of course, they did not succeed, um, and that wasn't, I think, until the 1890s or early 1900s that, that the unequal treaty system was ended with respect to Japan. They were also there to tour different educational institutions and military installations and political institutions. They visited Congress. They, I believe they actually visited the Naval, the U.S. Naval Academy as well. In, what I, in, one of the, in, in an episode that I, I think is just one of my examples of the world being a lot smaller than people assume, even in the past, uh, there was a parade in New York for this delegation right before its departure on its way back to Japan. In the crowd was Walt Whitman, who wrote the poem Broadway Patent, inspired by that site. Also in the crowd was the New York 69th Regiment, which was a, then under the command of Michael Corcoran and went on to fame in the American Civil War. As I've uh, discussed on, on another podcast appearance on Outlaw History, one of the people in the shogunate's delegation was a ninja, was one of the hereditary informants that uh, served the shogun's family. Um, and rather amusingly, uh, an actual ninja didn't recognize President Buchanan, but neither did anybody else because President Buchanan was notorious for dressing down. Was Brooke with him at this time because he had escorted them to the Pacific? Yes, he was, as I recall, he was with them through California. I'm not sure if he was still with them in Washington. What happens to Brooke after they separate? Brooke is one of, Brooke is one of the figures in American naval history who I came at from Japanese history and later learned what everybody else knows him for. So Brooke resigns from the U.S. Navy uh, when the Civil War breaks out and goes on to fame for his role in, in uh, uh, rebuilding the um, the ex-USS Merrimack into the CSS Virginia. And I think after the war, he becomes an instructor at VMI. There's another naval officer, another naval academy graduate, Lieutenant yeah. Frederick Pearson, who also plays a role in this, in this uh, endeavor. And what, was his, what were his actions in Japan? Pearson was in command of a very small warship, a, a chartered into commission, as I recall, uh, warship called the USS Takiang, and this was the United States' attempt at hurriedly putting together participation in the expedition against the, the forts on the Strait of Shimonoseki 
in um, in 64. Why were they looking to attack the forts of Shimonoseki? They were looking to attack the forts there because the Choshu domain, uh, which controlled the fiefdom and the, the western tip of Honshu, was particularly anti-foreign and had decided that they were going to start shelling foreign, foreign vessels, warships, or otherwise that were transiting the strait. And in order to ensure safe passage, the French, the British, uh, the Prussians, and also the U.S. organized this expedition. But because this was during the American Civil War, there weren't any steamships, U.S. steamships in Japan at the time capable of participating. So they hurriedly, the American uh, officials in, present in Japan at the time, uh, chartered this former merchant vessel, armed it, and put it into action um, uh, against the, uh, the Shimonoseki forts with Pearson in command. It wasn't really very big, and at one point it needed a tow from the British, but the U.S. was there too. Whatever became of uh, Pearson then? Does he remain in Japan or come back to the United States to, to uh, fight the Confederates? So I'm not familiar with Pearson's story, but I know what happens to his ship. The Pakyang uh, is sold to the Shogun's government and becomes the Oemaru. It, jo- it actually joins the, um, the ranks of the Shogunate Navy. During the Boshin War, it's handed over to the Date clan, uh, who organized the Northern Alliance, and is still under the name Oemaru and takes part in a couple of uh, amphibious operations during the, during the war in northern Honshu. But I'm less familiar with Pearson's uh, story. And shortly after this, there's the Boshin War. And could you explain what the Boshin War was? The Boshin War is, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood wars when it comes to academic scholarship in English because there's a tendency to refer to the Meiji Restoration of 1868 as having been peaceful. But that wasn't the case at all. It was a revolution. And it was a bloody revolution. The Boshin War fought from roughly January 27th, 1868 to, I think, the middle of May 1869 was, uh, actually, as um, I think it was Ishii Takashi, Jap- a Japanese historian, who uh, referred to it as three wars in one. Because initially it was the nascent imperial government versus the shogun. And then it was the nascent imperial government versus the Northern Alliance, and finally the imperial government, which had expanded, which had expanded and consolidated its control over all of Honshu, Kyushu, and Shikoku, against the Ezo Republic in what's now Hokkaido, which was made up of the survivors of the Shogunate Army and Navy and the survivors of the Northern Alliance. All too often. People are in, in writing on the subject of, the, of this period in, 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 in English are in a hurry to wrap up their conversation about what came before or hurry through the early stages of what came afterwards. Why is that? And so the Boshin War falls, falls through the cracks. Why is that? Um, I honestly couldn't tell you. I'm not sure why. Part of my conjecture is that most people who do scholarship on 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 this the broader period, the Bakumatsu late shogunate, i.e. Meiji transition, do a lot of their studying in uh, Tokyo and Kyoto and other major centers like that. And by doing so, I think tend to miss the stories of the people who were defeated. So I went to school for a little while in Sendai in the north. And so I got the 
vanquished point of view on the Boshin War. And then I realized that, wait, there are people erasing this in English or just, you know, conveniently not talking about it or giving it one paragraph. Why? What's going on? And how can I how can I work against this? Um, And that drove my uh, that drove my sense of urgency in writing my doctoral dissertation, which I'm hoping will still become my first history book. I Uh, hope so. Thank you. And and we see this the third Naval Academy graduate in Japan at this time. That's Alfred Thayer Mahan. What was Mahan doing in in Japan? Mahan was executive officer of the USS Iroquois, and I've only just begun exploring his story in Japan. But something that particularly, again, one of these convergences that has caught recently caught my eye is the fact that, so the last shogun, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, when he fled from the battle that, be, that started the Boshin War, he had meant to slip out of Osaka, where his command center was, and make it to one of his warships and be able to steam home to Edo, where his, uh, his main castle was. But his little um, his his launch was not able to make it to Kaiyomaru, that Dutch-built warship I mentioned earlier. They did make it to the USS Iroquois. So it's interesting to me that Mahan, who goes on to such great fame later on as both an instructor and also as a writer on um, you know, geopolitical issues and history, Mahan may have by utter chance crossed paths with the last shogun. You know, he remains in Japan, I think, through 1870. Your focus is on the House of Date, correct? Yes. Were they, among the different houses, were they the proponents of naval power for Japan? Yes. Among the and clans? They were some of the earliest, even all the way back in the 17th century. The House of Date built its own Spanish-style warship and sent its own political delegation to the Philippines, Mexico... Spain, France, Rome, and they had meant to displace the Tokugawa shogun as rulers of Japan, but did not succeed. Fast forward to the um, to 1854, and the House of Date had had been arguing for the opening of Japan for quite a while because they, since the, as they were located in northern Honshu, they were often given coastal defense assignments in and what we now call Hokkaido, and in the Kurils, and they saw over and over and over the visits of the Russians and the English and the sometimes the Americans, who warships and whalers and otherwise, and they realized that we're going to have to do something about this. Why don't we start building bigger ships and working on our on 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 uh, on, on uh, military reform? Who who opposes they, that among the clans? Within the House of Date? Uh, no, the other, the other clan, uh, the other houses. Who was opposing that concept, or were they in unison when the, when Date was proposing this? I'm not sure about opposition. However, I can tell you, I can tell you another rather important source of support for the idea was the House of Shimazu, way on the opposite end of Japan in southern Kyushu, and they had a vested interest in developing, in opening Japan and developing their naval power and their their uh, international contacts further because they had been illicitly trading with the rest of the world through the Okinawan Islands on the sly for, for quite a while. And o- Okinawa was nominally an independent kingdom, but owed, in practice owed dual allegiance to the Qing Emperor and the House of Shimazu. 
And so because it wasn't technically in Japan, the same rules didn't apply there. You know, they had a particular investment in, in the same issues. And they were also some of, along with the House of Date, the Shimazu were also one of the earliest clans to build their own Western-style warships. And they build, in fact, they build their own navy. And rather famously, Admiral Togo, who commanded the Imperial uh, Japanese Naval uh, Force at Tsushima, got his start in seamanship as a sailor in the Shimazu Navy. Each clan have a military academy, since you had mentioned the House of Date had its own. It was not typical because clans could range from very small to very large. However, the smaller clan, what the smaller clans were more likely to do in that case would be to send people to other clans' academies or to the shogun's academies in Edo or Nagasaki or, or wherever else. You know, the Date had their academy in their domain school at Yokendo, and the Shimazu had their academy, actually they had a few, um, which go on to become the, the network from which the uh, Saigo Takamori, the leader of the final samurai uprising in the 1870s, draws some some of the base of his support. Uh, basically, if it's a bigger clan, they likely had some form of Western-style military instruction, either from people who had trained with the um, with the shogunate, or occasionally through hiring their own foreign instructors. The House of Matsudaira of Aizu Domain, also in the north, pursued the latter, and they they hired that uh, Prussian gunrunner Schnell, but also bought some not only equipment, but also some measure of consulting from the Lehman Hartman Company, which was based out of, um, out of Nagasaki. And, and this is about the same time that they're building the first modern schooner in Japan, correct? The, the Kais, is it Kaisei Maru? Kaisei Maru, yeah. Kaisei Maru. Kaisei Maru was shortly, shortly after the Perry mission. It was, it was, in the, it was, in the mid-18, was built in the mid-1850s at the Yamazaki shipyard in what's now Ishinomaki, just east of Sendai. And I want to make sure I understood something right uh, from your dissertation, and that you wrote that the, the House of Date was hoping to build a larger navy, but that the central government began cutting budgets and uh, increasing taxes, and which had the effect of uh, not allowing the House of Date to, to build that larger navy. Was that a correct interpretation as I was reading that? The, not the central government, but the Date government itself. The Date government had to drastically reduce its own expenditures and raise taxes in order to balance its budget. And this was because they had gone through, I think it was like 30 or 40 years of near continuous famine. And, you know, they pre it, it, had the, it briefly, their, their finances briefly recovered just enough to start thinking about expansion, but then things got worse again. And there was a reformer by the name of Tadaki who oversaw the, um, the uh, fiscal uh, uh, reforms that uh, cut the Date uh, uh, government's budget to, I think, one-sixth. And that's what it enters 1868 with. When is the really big push for the Japanese Navy uh, as we know it in, say, the, the Sino-Japanese War? I'm less familiar with the Imperial Navy, but my sense as a scholar of the late Edo is that it's after the Boshin War that this becomes possible. And it's 
it becomes possible because these victors in that war who were from Satsuma and from Choshu and the other victorious clans who now formed the imperial government had absorbed not only the uh, vessels of the uh, shogunate navy and the, the equipment of the shogunate army, but also had taken over some of their previously established installations and also had taken some of the shogunates, but also the vanquished clan's uh, brightest talent in, when it came to military affairs. So it wasn't until the, it, it, this, this, this sort of push wasn't possible until the 1870s, but it became possible because of, because of the absorption of that equipment and that talent. What surprised you most in your research? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> There's a lot of things that... Um, Was there ever an aha moment? There's always that when you're, when you're in some library or archive, I know I've experienced it, you know, other folks who have done PhDs, there's, there's something, that aha moment, that you come across this one page or this one line or a realization that A led to B. I think where it happened, and this has less to do with the Navy and more to do with the House of Date and its role in the, in the War of 1868, I think... When, the point that that happened was when I started reading ancient history in that region. And I began to realize that the, you know, this, this, this one clan, powerful though it was by 1850s standards, this one clan in the north, why would anybody else fall in line with it beyond its military, beyond its presumed military strength, whether they could have actually projected any power and coerced any compliance I think is a subject of some debate, but when I when I studied ancient history and I I noted the, the locus of power in the north as having more or less focused on roughly the region that the Date came from, and then I read a little bit more and I found that the Date are part of a very long line of local local power brokers, uh, if you will claim this this mantle of leadership in the north and uh, going back to the the Emishi people the non Yamato inhabitants of original inhabitants of northern Japan uh, mantle of authority of uh, being the center of gravity the political center of gravity of the north of the north 1868 started to make a little bit more sense it it sort of became more obvious that the date are seeing themselves as the heirs of the northern Fujiwara of the 12th century and the Rusu of the 14th and the Osaki of the 16th. Um, they're, they're just continuing this, this lineage of, quote-unquote lineage, of, uh, of being the locus of northern uh, political semi-autonomy. And so that made 1868 made a make a lot more sense, you know, because otherwise, you know, for a clan nominally powerful but fiscally straightened, dealing with depopulation issues and a lack of, of cutting-edge equipment and, and manpower to have gone into this war where it was, it, you know, the, the, the odds were so overwhelmingly against it doesn't quite make sense. But it, as part of that much, much longer picture, I feel like that started to come into some, some clarity. 
I sincerely hope that I will see more scholarship in English on the Boshin War in particular, but also on the 1850s and 1860s, and particularly from a military perspective, because, you know, the the Imperial Navy and the Imperial Army in particular don't come out of nowhere. As I said, I'm doing this research now as an independent scholar, you know, with, with, with minimal resources, but I, I can't even begin to imagine what somebody with an academic library could do. Okay, it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily something that's in vogue right now, but I really, I would contend that if we're going to understand what came afterwards, particularly from a military and political standpoint, we need to do our due diligence in the 1850s and 1860s, and we need to not be afraid of getting very local. You know, that's what I did with, you know, having focused my, rooted my research in Sendai and the House of Date. I was able to, I was able to do what I did, and I was able to also, at the same time, keep, keep and refine a better sense of the international connectivity of this period. You know, this, this wasn't, this wasn't a matter of swords versus guns and the losers were these noble samurai who didn't understand that guns could hurt them no the people who lost had gatling guns and enfield rifles <laughs> you know this is not you know the, the the image that we get from movies like the last samurai is not really terribly correct mm -hmm. uh, so i really do hope that i see other scholarship out there in english in in the coming years now, i look forward also to seeing more attention paid to the interactions between American naval history and Japanese naval history of the 1860s, because you wind up with American figures like Brooke or like William Barker Cushing, who are in Japan during the Japanese Civil War, but are more famous for what they did or where they got their start during the American Civil War. But so, so seeing more of those, seeing more of those connections explored in scholarship and also in, you know, in, in public history, I think would be amazing. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Bakalian. We really appreciate your insights on the Boshin War, the Shogunate Navy, and a few of the Naval Academy graduates who were involved. I very much appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us again for another episode of Preble Hall. And if you like the episodes, please do leave some feedback on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.